Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. you, God, that you are so kind and that you want to see us come to you and from the depths of our heart, pour out our troubles because sometimes that's exactly what it takes to be filled back up. Lord, I ask, Lord, that then you would not leave us empty, but that your Holy Spirit would rise up within us, filling us with a spirit of your love and your peace and your grace and your hope. 
And Father, that you would allow us once again to pour it out on those around us. great delight in you that he's there willing to quiet you with his love and rejoice over you with singing that he knows every hair on your head he knows everything you've done and he loves you and has provided a way through
so that we can feel your presence. You've made it possible for the Holy Spirit to move in us and work on us. I ask that you keep the feeling of your presence with us as we hear what you have to say to us through your message. We love you, God. Amen. Good morning, Covenant family. So where were we? Just thought I'd ask. I, I, how about we push the reset button? That work? And let's let's start with this though. Uh, everybody from our staff who are in this building and other places to the volunteers in our children's department who first found the problem, our security team, Jefferson County Sheriff's Department, Shepherdstown Volunteer Fire Department, Sharpsburg Fire Department. Can we thank them for what they did last week? <laughs> Love you guys. Um, and for those of you part of the fire department, we got barbecue coming tomorrow night just to say thank you. Uh, we are, are delighted. Uh, you know, the, our security team have been pushing on me for a long time to have a fire drill. And, uh, and my reflexive answer has been on Sunday morning. <laughs> That's funny. Gentlemen, we just had our fire drill. You're welcome. All right. And what I am told is that this building, which was full of people, was completely evacuated in under five minutes. I think we did okay. I really do. And so, um, but, but I intend to preach today. Otherwise, my wife may have to endure this. And so turn with me to John chapter one. I'm serious, people. I was so excited last week. And when I walked out, I was just like, Oh, gosh, I felt like somebody cut my tongue out. It was just awful. And, and it wasn't just because I wanted to preach and I didn't get to preach. It's, it's because of the message, the nature of what, what I intended to say last week, but what apparently God and his kind providence did not intend for me to say last week, but instead this week. So I'm excited about it. I am so excited about it. I'm wearing the same shirt. I haven't even washed it. That's how committed I am to pressing this uh, reset button. So John chapter 1, with this is the last in a series that we we're going to finish up last week called Surrender. And we're going to talk about a vision for your life, a vision for your loved ones, a vision for our church that can only be brought by the kind of surrender that we've been talking about over these last several weeks, this theme of surrender. I've told our staff this. I've mentioned this to you all. We had a business session several weeks ago where we talked about this, that 2023, I really believe with all my heart, is going to be a year of preparation for God's people. I think it's going to be a year of preparation. I know it will be for our church. I think it's going to be a year of preparation for some of you. I think 2023 is going to be the year that many of you look back on, not that something significant necessarily happened, but that such a change and such a shift in thinking began to happen, a shift in operation began to happen in your life, that 2024 and beyond became very, very significant. When I go to other places around the country and around the world and people ask me, tell me about your church, tell me about the area where you live, and not just Shepherdstown, but the, the whole tri-state area, three different license plates 
represented in our parking lots every single Sunday. Pastor, tell us about that area. And I always usually begin by something like this. We are a small place connected to a big place. That's where we are. And what's interesting is every time God has ever moved in history, starting with the birth of Jesus himself, he chose a small place connected to a big place. I think he's got good things in store for us, but we have to surrender. Jesus wants everything. He wants everything in your life, everything in my life, everything our church has to offer, because it's not really ours anyway. He gave it to us, didn't he? And so this theme of surrender concludes today by moving more from the macro to the micro, because just like God often uses small places connected to big places, he doesn't tend to do big things unless he's done the small things first, and he doesn't tend to do things in mass until he has first done them in the human heart. So I want to talk about your heart this morning. I want to talk about where you are in, in your position before the Lord. I don't have any intention of embarrassing anybody. I'm not going to call anybody out. But I am going to pray this morning that God's Spirit convicts, drives you in, in whatever way he chooses to this. Because most of us who walk with Jesus for a long time, we know the names of people who have touched thousands, don't we? We know them. But we don't know the people who reach them. I, I mentioned that the other week, that there were ever, almost everybody who's been a Christian for any significant length of time, you know who Dwight L. Moody is, Moody Radio, Moody Publishing, Moody Bible Institute, all that, that guy. Hardly anybody knows that Edward Kimball, a, a British Sunday school teacher who led somebody to the Lord, who led somebody else to the Lord, and then, and then along comes D.L. Moody. We, 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 we forget that it's, it's really in that legacy that God does his best work. And, and so do we desire to be the origin of that, even if it's obscure? Even if 100 years from now, nobody remembers us, but they remember the people that we touched. Somebody else you don't know, unless you're rather close to me and have heard my story, is a guy named Bill Merritt. You, you wouldn't have any reason to know him, and, and honestly, you couldn't know him now, even if you wanted to. He's, he's gone to heaven now for probably more than a, than a decade. But Bill Merritt was not a theologian. He was not a pastor. I, I did have a pastor lead me to Christ. His name was Bill Cashin, still in his 70s. He's going strong and hard and still a full professor at a university and doing mission work around the world. I'm, I thank God every day for Bill leading me to faith in Christ. But the guy who led me to understand the practical nuts and bolts, rubber meets the road, what, what difference does this even make kind of lesson for my Christian faith was a blue-collar South Carolina mill worker named Bill Merritt. Nobody's ever heard of him in this room. But Bill Merritt, and Bill Merritt didn't have, I, I, when I think about my ministry I'm 20, in my 29th year now, thousands of sermons, by the way, if you just do the math on that, and it was really, especially when I consider that Scripture says we're going to be judged for every word, a thousand sermons is 2.3 million words. Y'all pray for me. And that's not including today. Congregations, some of them, and I, I remember some of those Western Kentucky congregations that Amy and I used to get called out to when I was a young preacher, and I didn't have anywhere to preach, and I just wanted to preach, and God had called me to preach, and they would say, we're three hours away and you got to drive all the way out, get up at 4 a.m., drive all the way out, preach to our congregation, drive all the way back to the seminary. We'll give you 50 bucks. And I remember going, yeah. I get to preach, and then we go to Applebee's afterwards. This is going to be awesome, right? That's an awesome day. How are we going to put gas in the tank, baby? I don't know, but you know what? This is going to be awesome. I, I remember those days, all those messages. Congregations, some of them as small as 12 
And since then, some as large as 3,000, 4,000. Books I've had the opportunity to write, articles, sermons, every single place in the world that the gospel has come to somebody else through my mouth or through my pen can be traced back to a South Carolina blue-collar mill worker you've never heard about. Did you know that? And for most of us, that's the way it works. That's the way it works. And, and Bill Merritt never, never, I don't think, did Bill ever get up and have this vision that he was going to preach the gospel to thousands of people. He Honestly, he wasn't an eloquent man. I don't know that he could have. But you know who he did have a vision for? Some little skinny, I was skinny at one point. I, I was. 14-year-old knothead named Joel. And he said, I'm going to invest in that young man. And the other six or seven young men that are about his age that are sitting here. And let's just see what God does with these young men. Guys, that's, that's where the difference is really made. It's not in venues. Listen, coming to church is important. Y'all have heard me talk about this. You've heard me lovingly, and I hope you've heard the love in it, scold you for putting other priorities ahead of church attendance because it just helps. It just works. You just, you've got to gather with the people of God. Don't hear me minimizing this gathering, but what I am saying is the most critical and strategic things that God often does are not in large gatherings like this. They're often in those small relationships, and they're anchored in the heart of somebody who just has a heart for a single person, a passion for one, which means that most of you have a capacity to be way more effective than any pastor or any evangelist. And I just want us to go back to John chapter 1, look at a passage of Scripture that we began with at the start of this series, at a, a passage of Scripture and a person that demonstrates this. And, and it does so through contrast. How many of you could name all 12 of Jesus' original disciples? You notice my hand didn't go on up either. It's hard to remember 12 names, isn't it? It's hard. Like the Supreme Court's nine people, and I don't even remember all them. Like, I don't, it's hard to remember a list. I mean, you get it. Like, I've got seven years of postgraduate theological education. I, I have a hard time doing it because there are people that automatically I know, but there's all these unknown names, isn't it? Like, well, wait a minute, there were 12 of them? Oh, yeah, there were 12 of them. There was, and I'm, I'm going through the list, and I'm trying to remind myself and using memory joggers and everything. Oh, yeah, there was that. Oh, Thaddeus. I forgot about Thaddeus. Who names their kid Thaddeus? Who does that? Bartholomew. I bet that kid got beat up a lot. And then my favorite one is James. Not that James, the other James. You know there was two of them? Yeah, you forgot that, didn't you? You know why? Because one of them was the brother of Jesus. How would you have loved to have been that other guy? Yeah? You're, you're one of Jesus. Oh, it's a pleasure to meet you. I love to meet you. Which one are you? I'm James. Oh, you're the brother of Jesus? Well, no, I'm, I'm the other. I, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's good to meet you. Historians literally call him James the Less. How's that for a historical designation? We don't remember them all. So there's, there's, even among the original 12, there's names we have a hard time remembering, but there's three we really remember, Peter, James, and John, don't we? We remember them because, well, they were kind of a trifecta that Jesus had to reprimand a few times. He called them the sons of thunder. That's, by the way, not a compliment. That is, y'all got mouths a whole lot bigger than any other part of your body, and that ain't a good thing. They were impetuous. They were hasty. They were bold, had a lot of courage. 
But sometimes they were way too proud. Peter in particular moved before checking with Jesus. So often he would respond to situations without Christ's permission. Remember the sword and the ear? Yeah. But in, in John 1, we see them contrasted with this other guy that we've seen before in this series. Peter's brother, a guy named Andrew. And Andrew, he's not as well known. But I don't want you to let his work in the background fool you into thinking that he was passive. Andrew was as bold and decisive and determined as his brother was. And we know that for no other reason than if there had not been an Andrew, there would not have been a Peter. There just wouldn't have been. And guys, that's the kind of vision we need for our loved ones. That's the kind of vision we need for our neighborhoods. Don't just ask yourself. When we said, who's your one a few weeks ago, I'm not just asking you who you want to see come to Christ. I'm asking you, who do you see Christ making them to be? Who are they going to become? Some of you are working in, in the darker corners of areas that nobody hardly ever recognizes. Some of you are working with a ministry right now called Jubilee Kids, and you're working in Apple Tree Apartments, and you're, you're working with kids who some of them have, a, have, a circum, have circumstances in life that are far less fortunate than, than some of our kids. And the temptation is going to be to see that as nothing more than, oh, we're just helping out some kids that need some help. And what I want to encourage you to do is to see one of those young men as the next leader pastor at Covenant Church inside the next 15 years. Have you thought that far ahead? Because Jesus does. And he uses people like you and people like, listen, he, he used Bill Merritt, a guy you've never heard about, to pour into my life in, in ways that I wouldn't even make a, guys, I, it took me so long to make a return on investment. I am some days I feel like a Chevy big block engine. Like I can get a lot done, but I require a lot of gas to get it done, right? And it just, it took a while. And I can't imagine a guy like Bill going, oh, geez, what's going on with this kid? You know, what's happening with him? Oh, look, he did that. Oh, oh. Anybody ever watch your own kids and do that? Wow, that's awesome. Yo, oh, hang on. That was my life, my late teens, my my early 20s. Let me use this simple example of Andrew to describe the characteristics of a person with this kind of vision. It's a vision that only full surrender can bring. This says, all right, Lord, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to invest in others and teach them to give you everything, and we're going to see what happens. Amen? We're not going to control the outcome. We're just going to see what happens. Here, here's the first characteristic. They see the value of individual people. Guys, that's not common. Do you, do you realize how uncommon that is? To see the value of individual. We have a megalomania love affair in America, in the evangelical church, with all things large. And listen, I, I get it. If you offer me the, the choice between a 12-ounce prime rib and a 16-ounce prime rib, I'm going for a full pound every single time. I get it. I, I like large. But we got to be careful that we don't worship large. And, and fr frankly, guys in my line of work can, can be some of the worst. We see that in the life of Andrew. His, his life, his model helps us hold that lust for largeness in check because he appreciated the value of a single soul. In fact, there's no record of Andrew ever addressing a big crowd of people. Peter did it. 3,000 people came to Jesus. James did it. Pastor, closest thing, closest example we've got to a lead pastor, church at Jerusalem. John did it, Ephesus. 
I mean, we, we see that. We don't, we don't ever see. We don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. We don't know. What we do know is that the Holy Spirit inspired these words to let us see that Andrew's work was done under the cover of night. Andrew's work was done one-to-one. Andrew's work was done person-to-person. And without that work, the larger work would have never, ever happened. Wouldn't have happened. And so that, that may be the work that God is calling a lot of people to. I tell our pastoral residency that all the time. I tell our current elders that all the time. Because the, the danger is the temptation to think that what I do up here right now, because there's big lights and there's a microphone and there's two TV cameras pointed at me, that it's the most significant thing that happens here. And it's not. It's important. What's spoken from this pulpit drives the church. That's not unimportant. But the most significant divine activity actually happens person to person, which means that among our elders, if there are men who go, well, I just can't do that the way Joel does it. Well, I'm not that eloquent. I don't have this. I don't have that. Some of you are a lot better, though, one-on-one than I am. Some of you are a lot better than I am in bringing small groups together and putting them together. And the issue is to recognize, first and foremost, you don't not only have to do what I do, you don't have to do it the way I do it. You have to do it the way Jesus wired you to do it. You have to surrender yourself to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Give Jesus everything and watch what he does. That's what we see Andrew doing. And the result is he brought this one Jesus would call Peter to Jesus. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now five chapters later, John chapter 6, verse 8, we see this happening again. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? He brought the boy in his lunch to Jesus. Just, just one. That's all he did. And if you know the Bible story, the one that if you've grown up in church, you probably heard starting around the first grade, you, you know how that ended. And that's true for conversion as well, guys. Most people don't come to Christ as a result of an immediate response to a sermon they hear in a crowded setting. And frankly, if someone does that today, we can thank God for it, but likely as not, it began not in this room, but with an individual that they know that influenced them, that loved them, that invested in them. That's true even, even of my own ministry. I love what I do. I love it. I hope it's obvious. I love it. I love standing up here and proclaiming God's word. It gives me energy. But the times where I've been most overwhelmed by God's presence, the times where I have seen his power most active, hasn't been up here. Hasn't really been in, in any pulpit. Let me, let me tell you something. What we have here is a gift of God. And we have to make sure that we steward it well. Whether it's our technology, whether it's our facility, whether it's all these things, we steward it well. And one of the ways we have to steward it is to be sure we don't make an idol out of it. My, don't make an idol out of this kind of stuff. I'm telling you, with, with the Western church, with our money, with our comfortable seats, with our air conditioning, with our lights, with our TV cameras, with our fog machines, there's a real underbelly danger of trying to manufacture something rather than just wait on the Holy Spirit to do what he does. That's what I love about Asbury. It's a hundred-year-old chapel. I mean, that, you want to talk about an analog revival? Isn't that great? To a bunch of Gen Zers, people who are supposedly trapped on their phones. The Lord just turned that whole thing upside down, didn't he? 
And we start to see that when we make these kinds of investments. I mean, I remember years ago, about 10 years ago, I think, I was in the Middle East. Syrian civil war was firing up, and we were geographically, I can't tell you exactly where we were, but it, it, geographically we were in a place where we were, we were close enough we could hear the shelling. And we were in the home of a guy who was the owner of a, of a pretty well-known international company. If I called the name of it, some of you would probably know it sitting there talking about the brokenness of the world. Because I'll tell you something, that's something we can agree on, right? We, we've got some differences, some eternally significant differences with our Muslim neighbors, with our Jewish neighbors, but I'll tell you, it, it really doesn't matter what religion you are. All you've got to have is a little bit of common sense to look around and tell the world is broken. Amen? And we were talking about the brokenness of the world. And we were talking about ways that our, in our respective careers, even our respective religions, that we were, we were trying to, to fix the world and make it better. And then it came around to the understanding of sin, and we got to have a really honest conversation about not just the similarities but the differences. That sin, at least in the Christian mindset, it is not merely imperfection. It is open and unmitigated rebellion against God. And, and that the reason for our belief in the cross is tied specifically to that understanding of sin. And, and it just, the conversation just sort of flowed naturally. And I can remember back and forth through my translator sharing with this guy and, and some of his co-workers around that huge, this dining room table was bigger than my dining room times two. And, and just sharing with him, listen, I, I understand our Muslim neighbors not only don't even believe that happened in history, but it is blasphemous to believe that it happened, that God would actually have to do something like that to forgive. And I, I, I think I understand you correctly that that, that God should be able to forgive anywhere, anytime, any place that he wants. He's sovereign. He's God. Yes, that's right. Well, I actually agree with that. The only problem is every time you forgive, it costs somebody something. And it was about that time I just happened to notice the, the chandelier. Guys, I don't, let me ask my wife, I don't notice stuff. I just happened to notice this chandelier probably cost twice what I make in a year. And I said, if I were to do something foolish and cause that thing to come crashing down, and destroy it, and destroy this beautiful dining room table in your home. And it was about that time he looked at me like, don't you mess with my chandelier. I said, I have, you have two choices. You can hold me responsible for it, in which case I and maybe even my children, depending on what all this costs, are going to be in debt to you for a really long time. Or you can say, I forgive you and turn me loose. There's still a shattered chandelier. There's still a busted up table. Every time there's forgiveness, it costs somebody something. Christians believe in the cross, not because we're trying to be dogmatic, but because we believe forgiveness costs. Sin is such an offense to a holy and infinitely righteous God that the penalty is death, and that penalty is non-negotiable. We believe in the cross because we believe that's the hope. Jesus paid it. And that was when I heard these words back through my translator. Can you tell me that again? Because I've never heard this before. And in that context, Muslim called a prayer coming from a nearby tower in that region. I got to do something. I got to share a message. I got to see the Lord work in lives in ways more powerful guys and I have ever seen. And it, it's just about sitting down from the person across from you, no matter how big their dining room table is or small, 
and seeing the value of that individual soul. That's when God starts to do amazing things. Amazing things. Listen, he does not need a spotlight. He does not need a microphone. But what he wants are faithful people to understand that on this earth, there is nothing more valuable than souls created in his image that Jesus died to save. And if you recognize that, you, you start to understand who is that one soul that he has given you a burden for, that person maybe that's been waking you up at 3 a.m. to pray for, see the value of individual people. Secondly, see the value of insignificant gifts. Let's go back to chapter 6, verse 8 again. One of his disciples Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now notice this next question. But what are they for so many? You hear the doubt in that? Lord, here's what we got. It ain't much. So many people think small means insignificant. And we translate that into every area of our lives, don't we? I mean, let's just, let's just think, let's, let's think about giving for just a moment, just that whole idea of Christian stewardship and the idea that together as a church family, we're, we're not just together in this mission, we're helping to fund the mission. And all of us are doing that at different levels. But you know, preachers, people sitting in the seats, we, we, we get so excited about a $25,000 gift and don't think a whole lot about a $2 gift. But can I share with you something? Just a little math equation here that might, might shed some light on that for you. Right now, 22 weeks into our budget year, we are roughly $27,000 behind budget. Now, for a church our size, that's really not that much. It's really not. Nobody's in a full-blown panic over it. We're going to watch it. We're going to be careful. But, but we're, not, we're not upset about it. We know the, the economy's contracting. We know inflation. We know life's been hard on a lot of people. We, we're going to be careful moving forward. We're going to be wise but I want you to think about that for a minute. On the one hand, in a church our size, $27,000 is not a terribly significant amount of money. But if you take that amount of money and you put it on my single household, anybody in here got $27,000 just laying around? You're wondering what to do with it? Because I don't. I don't. I mean, y'all take really good care of me. I mean, not that good, right? It, no, nor should you. I mean, that's, that's, like, that's all of us, most of us. We just don't have that kind of money laying around. But if you take that amount that seems insurmountable to a single individual or a single household and you break that down in the number of giving units that we have here that, that so radically and generously give to the covenant family, and then some of you maybe that haven't given this year for, for reasons that we don't know and it's not really our business to judge, but maybe it's because of this. Maybe you think, well, what little bit I got to give, what is it for so many? If you break it down over 22 weeks, the additional that needs to be given or the thing that needs to start being given, not per individual, per household, to get that red ink from 27000 to zero. Do you know how much it is? $4 a week. Not per person, per household. That's it. But see, we tend to think we, all we see is the big number, right? All we see is the big number. When it comes to talent, same thing. All we see is the stage. All we see is the lights. We think it's got to take some big thing. No, it takes somebody fully surrendered. You remember the widow's mite? All those religious leaders dropping that money in, making sure it hit the bottom so everybody heard all those big gold coins coming down in there. One widow gives one. That's, it's all, it, here's the difference. It was all she had. Those guys doing it to show off. She's doing it because she's giving everything she's got to Jesus. 
And Jesus rewards that. And so whether it's our finances, whether it's our talents, where, whatever it is, some of us share a little bit of Andrew's doubt here. What do I have that would be so good for so many? you got a kindred spirit in Andrew. Because there's some doubt about this statement. This, this is all we've got. But you know what he did? He brought the boy anyway, didn't he? And then what did Jesus do? That boy didn't have enough to feed 5,000 people. Andrew didn't have enough to feed 5,000 people. But when you bring something to Jesus, when you bring somebody to Jesus, he can do what nobody else is able to do, which is another way, brothers and sisters, of saying this. No gift that you give, no talent that you lend, no effort that you put forward, no matter how small, is insignificant when it is placed in the hands of Jesus. That's what he wants you to hear this morning. Maybe you don't have a lot of money. Listen, that, let, maybe you grew up in some kind of prosperity gospel background or some church that guilted you. In the, or maybe you're brand new to the faith and you're like, Pastor, we love you. We love the church, but we're new in our marriage and we haven't really practiced Christian financial principles and we're kind of in a bind right now and we owe for the mortgage and the two cars in the driveway and the dishwasher we just bought because the old one's on the clink. And we just, God never has in Scripture or anywhere else in history, and he never will ask you for what you don't have. Anybody in my line of work ever ask you to put a gift on a credit card, you know you're dealing with a snake oil salesman. Because God doesn't do that. But what you do have, he wants it all. Not necessarily to one institution, or anything. that's not what I mean. I'm saying, you just recognize, whatever I do have, God, my hands are open. What do you want? How do you want to use me? What do you want me to do? And you may not have a lot to give. You may not think yourself talented enough or skilled enough or eloquent enough. In this whole series, you've been thinking, how in the world could God use me to reach anybody? How could God use me to influence anybody? And you need some stories, like some Bill Merritt stories. But you also need to go back to those stories that you're familiar with in the Scripture. And you need to remember the stutter of Moses and the temper of Peter, and the terrorism of Paul, and the fear of Jonah, and the cowardice of Abraham, and the deception of Jacob. We are, we are enamored with all things large. And listen, large isn't sinful. If it is, we better bust this church up pretty quick. I, large isn't sinful, not inherently. I got friends of mine that pastor churches of thousands of people. I love them. They love Jesus. But listen, that if that's all we're looking at, if that's our pinnacle of success, if it's all about the image rather than the reality, then we're going to be stuck in North America with a model driven by what we call megachurches, which are responsible for less than 1% of the conversion growth in the United States. You know that, what that means? It means for every 100 people that join a megachurch, only one of them joined as a result of coming to faith in Jesus, and the other 99 joined because there was a better show across town. That's not evangelism. That's not fishing for men. That's trading aquariums. That's not what God called us to do. So money, power, influence, large facilities, none of that's the answer, guys. This church thought it was for years. We're going to be the biggest church in town. We're going to be the it church. Hopefully you know by now. I've been here seven years, and I've said it enough. I have zero interest in that. I want to church the area. I want to see Jesus' name be famous because of people like the people sitting in front of me right now. With no more than the equivalent of what this little boy had. What do you have? 
What's he giving you? He's going to ask you for it, whatever it is. And if you surrender it to him, he will, over time, use your willing obedience to do more long-term for his kingdom than any celebrity pastor, anything that's big and bad that you have ever seen on this planet. Nothing you do for Jesus, nothing you give to Jesus is ever insignificant. See the value of those individual people, those quiet moments. See the value of what the world might look at, and unfortunately even many preachers and churches see as an insignificant gift. Here's the final thing. And it may be the hardest. See the value of inconspicuous service. So this is where I take you back to this sort of afterthought in verse 8. It, it, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. You remember that from a couple weeks ago? First century. Andrew? Who? Simon Peter? Oh, I know Simon. Yeah, his brother. Oh, yeah, okay. All right. You have to be reminded of that. But Andrew is not the only unknown person. Andrew is a picture of anybody and everybody for the last 2,000 years that has ever labored in a quiet place that nobody ever noticed. You know there's 500 more disciples of Jesus at the time of his ascension to the Father. We, most of them, we have no idea who they were. We will never know their names, but they are the reason we sit here this morning. We would not be here. I mean, my... <laughs> My ancestors are Scottish. I'd be worshiping Thor right now if it weren't for those nameless people. And there are a lot of people connected to the church who will work very hard, but they're going to do it transactionally, and it's going to be an exchange for something. And most of the time, that something is recognition. It's a microphone. It's a spotlight. There's a pride indicator there. It says, I, be a part of the church. That's fine. But I, I gotta, I gotta be up front, up front. In, in its worst form, it comes out in all kinds of stuff, like you thinking that you're God's gift to God. Now you may have met people like that before. A couple of years ago, I had a guy in my office. It was kind of funny, really, not funny in the sense that I, I'm, I'm concerned about him, but in the sense that I thought, really, you're gonna do this? And he was. Well, here's the deal. We, we make it, and I, I, this is, I say this a lot, we make this stage very, very difficult to access and very, very easy to get booted off of for a reason because it's just too important. It just is. And so somewhere in the middle of that conversation, I, I had not said no. I had just said, you know, we don't really know you, and this is what I heard word for word. If I can't be on that stage, I will not be a part of this church. Bye, Felicia. <laughs> it's, it's, you're kidding me, really? We don't need people pimping their own brand to grow the kingdom. What we need is people that have a heart that says, you know, I just want my neighbors to know Jesus. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6. He's given the rationale for service, and he says this, not by way of eye service, in other words, so people will see me, recognize me, as people pleasers, so everybody will like me, which, by the way, if that's what you're out after, you better go sell ice cream for a living. You better not find a pulpit but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will 
as to the Lord and not to man. You know what he just described? A completely surrendered heart. God, this is yours. Everything I have is yours. A hundred years from now, it is more likely than not, nobody's going to remember who I was. May they know you. 2,000 years from now, it is even more likely nobody's going to remember who Joel Rainey was. May they know you because of seeds I planted two millennia earlier, even if they were planted in the dark. That's it. You just, you just, and some of you, this is who you are. I could name some of you, but I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to embarrass you. But this is who you are. And I'm going to tell you, brother, sister, it ain't me. It's not our staff. It's not our elders. It's you who are the reason that God's been moving the way he's been moving these last two years. You're it. Because you don't look for recognition. You don't look for, yeah, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to minimize the work of our pastors. I love those men or our staff. I'm just saying, it's not, it, the leader's job is not to attract all the attention. It's to midwife the mission and the ministry through the body. God did not call pastors. He called churches. Pastors have a role in that. God did not call leaders. He called churches. And we all have a role in that. And some of you, that's who you are, and that's why we are where we are. You just, I just want to please Jesus. I want my neighbors and loved ones to know Jesus but you think your obscurity is a liability or the fact that maybe you could never do what I'm doing now. Listen, you're exactly who Jesus is looking for. I think that's at least one of multiple purposes of this narrative is that through Andrew we can see that this is God's call for each of us. And guys, there's a lot of liberty in this. If you ask most of the emerging generation outside the church what's your greatest What's your greatest aspiration? You know what they'll tell you today? Fame. In an age of TikTok and Instagram, I want to be famous. I want people to know me. Listen, fame is not inherently evil any more than the largeness is inherently evil. There's a whole lot of slavery in fame that we don't think about. So much freedom and obscurity. I I had the opportunity several years ago to do some some church planning work, train church planners, train pastors, in the, uh, in the Caribbean islands. Yeah, I know. Suffering for Jesus. It was awful. Did it in February, too. That was even worse. Um, but if you ever go to the Caribbean islands, if you vacation there, um, anywhere, Antigua, where I was at work, Barbuda, Jamaica, I, let me encourage you to do something. Number one, get out of the tourist area. Just get... I, I, I've asked people before, like... You ever been out of the country? Yeah, yeah. Where, where'd you go? Jamaica. Where'd you stay? Sandals. Yeah, you ain't ever been out of the country. <laughs> you just haven't. Go take some of those. Yeah, Kokomo does not exist, but that, that's another. We'll get to that. Uh, let's talk afterwards. I, there's a, my wife and I got a whole story about Kokomo. <laughs> Sorry, little Beach Boys reference there. Um, so I, where was I? Oh, I remember. I remember. Go, if you go to the cabin, get off the, get in them back roads, right? Yeah, you don't need to be staying at Sandals anyway. I'll do a sermon on, on a biblical theology of business ethics on another Sunday. But they don't hire locals. They don't, just, just go find a mom and pop B&B looking at the Caribbean Sea. You'll still have a fabulous time. But do it local and get to know the people that actually live there. And one of the things you'll find, especially in the Caribbean islands, you'll find that it's dotted with these most gorgeous church buildings I've ever seen. 
some of the most gorgeous stained glass I've ever seen. Most of those churches are Moravian. They're Moravian, and they're there because of Moravian missionaries. The first one ever planted was in 1739 on the island of St. Thomas. And the missionaries were sent by a guy named Nicholas Zizendorf. So here's the thing I want you to see. Those islands today are covered with churches because of one guy who, unless you're a nerd like me that, that, that took a historical theology class in seminary, you've probably never heard of him. And the reason you've never heard of him because that was part of Zizendorf's mission. He would send those missionaries out to plant those churches that you can still see some 300 years later. And he would say, you have three objectives. Objective number one is to preach the gospel. Objective number two, die. Objective number three, be forgotten. Be forgotten. If that sounds depressing, then you don't understand how liberating it is that is supposed to be all about Jesus. We have lost something, brothers and sisters, of what it means to value and cherish obscurity. Some of the most powerful preachers in Scripture, I think about Micaiah when he confronted the wicked king Ahab. He got one shot. We never hear from him again. Who's okay with that? Saying, you know what, I'll do whatever. I give him anything. I'll, get, I'll take the one shot he gives me. I'll take the three shots he gives me. And when he's done with me, I'll be fine with him being done with me. It's not my fame that matters anyway. Jesus does his best work through people no one ever knows about. And those people value the one-to-one individual relationships. They, they see the value of gifts that others might see as insignificant. They value inconspicuous service. Early church tradition tells us pretty reliably, actually, that Andrew, after the closing of the canon of Scripture, made his way north. You know, the disciples went everywhere, and by the end of the the first century, they had covered pretty much the known world at that time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Andrew's feet took him to a place that today we call Russia and another place that today we call Scotland. Another reason I'm not worshiping Thor right now. Somebody was obedient. Somebody went. Somewhere in the middle of all that, he runs into a woman who's the wife of a Roman provincial governor. He shares the gospel with her. Jesus saves her. She's transformed in a radical way. In so radical a way, in fact, that that apparently it, it affected her home life in a way that her Roman governor husband found unappealing. And so he threatened her. He demanded that she renounce her faith. She refused. And so he said, that's fine. You want to hang on to that ridiculous faith? You hang on to that ridiculous faith. I'll make sure Andrew never shares it with another soul. He had Andrew detained, arrested, and crucified. That's how Andrew died. Hanging naked on a cross on a roadside. Spending his last hours calling out to people, walking down that road and pleading with them to turn to Jesus. That's why you're sitting in that seat right now. That's why I know anything to teach you right now. It's because somebody whose story, I'm going to guess, nobody's ever heard before today, 
Fast forward 2,000 years later, those of us who are the legatees of that kind of boldness, that kind of courage, that kind of humility, that kind of love, 98% of us have never shared the gospel with a non-Christian friend. 80% have never invited another neighbor, even a Christian neighbor. Do we have a spiritual vision for our loved ones? Do we have a spiritual vision for our coworkers? Guys, everything we're doing around here is, is to seek a way of having the community view us as what we call a third place. You know what a third place is? Just, just another spot on the map, but a, a spot I love, a spot I cherish, a spot without which our community would be less than what it is. What are you doing in your neck of the woods? we got a lot of business owners in this church. If I was a business owner, I would, on a regular ba basis, provide space for my employees. I'd, I'd supply them a nice meal. I would pay them for the time that they're there, so I got a chance to share my testimony with them. How are we leveraging what God has given us? How are, the, how are we leveraging? And, and are we taking joy in the fact that some of us might reach that one and God might do something with that one, whether it's the children in the back that so many of us when we hear need help do that? You have no idea what those little boys and little girls are going to do. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, a moment in time. I tell you, the older I get, the, the shorter 10 years seems to me. And I realize how fast it comes. And, it's, and that's, not, that's not negative. It's just, a, it's just a, a reality check. What's going to become of them? Well, do we see enough value that we're willing to invest? Who becomes the next pastor? Who becomes the next great missionary? What will God do? with the people in our sphere of influence. Guys, there's only one way to find out. That's with a heart that is fully surrendered to Jesus, fully committed to those one-on-one -on -one conversations, those things that seem insignificant to us. Be willing to do all of that if necessary in obscurity. What's he asking you for today? I don't know. It's going to be different things for different people. Let me say this. Whatever it is, Whatever it is, give it to him. Give it to him. Be patient. Be faithful. Be obedient. Watch what he does. Father in heaven, I pray for surrendered hearts all over this building, on the other side of that camera, through homes and other places where people are dealing with your word, where people are reckoning with your demands. But Father, you also tell us that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. You don't call us to drudgery, you call us to joy. And so Lord, help us to see the value of these things that we've seen in the life of your servant, Andrew. We thank you for a man willing to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Whole reason we're here right now. Father, give us that same commitment to your word and to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me? Elders and deacons, would you gather with me under these crosses? This is your opportunity to respond in any way that God may be calling you to respond. What's he asking you for today? Give it to him. Give it to him with joy. Let's sing.
say